Episode 1, Tosh Berman. My name is Michael Delgado and I'm your host. You're listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales of the L.A. Art Underworld. I'm coming to you each week from the fantastic Lobby Bar in the spectacular Mayfair Hotel, right here in downtown L.A. I'm meeting Tosh Berman, that Tosh Berman, son of Wallace. Berman, the name should ring in the halls of High Arts Pantheon, but old Wallace, he's only now getting his due. Tosh, his only son, is an author and publisher with his own kudos, and he's a solid guy to boot. But can we talk about Tosh without talking about Wallace, really? He's here to promote his new memoir, Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World. And what a world it was. Wallace is known for his collage work, but is better known for attracting and influencing artists, poets, musicians, celebrities of the era. And Tosh had a front row seat on the circus and lives to tell a story swirling around his upbringing amidst the likes of Beats, Jack Kerouac, Neil Cassidy, Allen Ginsberg, artists like Ed Keenholz, George Herms, Andy Warhol, Klaus Oldenburg, Ed Ruscha, the folk singer Odetta, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Elvis, producers Brian Epstein, Phil Spector, Tony Basel, actors Dean Stockwell, Dennis Hopper, artist and witch Carmen and her rocket scientist husband Jack Parsons who founded JPL, even Neil Young, and anyone else that mattered in the California art scene from the 50s through the 70s. Some consider Wallace the father of California assemblage, leader of the beats and hippies that glued and hammered together the flotsam and jetsam of a gilded illusion into powerful anti-social statements, and man made real art. You might recognize his pioneering stuff with the Vivifax machine, the copier of its day. You might know the images of a hand holding a transistor radio that has a Hebrew letter or a pop figure pasted on it. Like Warhol, he was keenly interested in pop phenomena and also had an ability to attract artists and celebrities into his highly influential orbit. But the comparison, left coast, right coast. Berman, the uncompromising monk with acolytes igniting a movement versus Warhol, a pop puppet master holding up a mirror to his time. From across the bar, I spy Tosh stepping into the Art Deco-appointed Mayfair lobby. He wears well-tailored clothing, a tan jacket with corduroy trousers, carries himself with a confidence that seems to draw power from the famed walls of this historic hotel. He's turned the 60-year corner and has a head of salt and peppered hair. Not as tall as his father, but there's a resemblance and there's a softening of some features inherited by his mother, the beautiful Shelley Berman. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed it. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any, and, oh yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. Hello. 
Hello, my name is Michael Delgado, host of A.G. Geiger Presents, and my guest today is author and publisher Tosh Berman. A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld, is produced by yours truly and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books, in conjunction with the spectacular Mayfair Hotel right here in L.A., and with the music and artist management company Regime 72. Please check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, AGGeiger.com. Tosh Berman is the founder and force behind the Tam Tam Books imprint that since 1998 has focused on the publication of 20th century international literature. It's devoted to the purpose of reprinting lost masterpieces and presenting them to a large English-speaking audience. Authors such as Serge Gainsbourg and Boris Vian owe much of their discovery by recent readers to Tosh and his label. Tosh is also the author of Sparks-tastic, 21 Nights with Sparks in London, and The Plum in Mr. Blum's Pudding, a collection of his poetry. He is also, of course, the only son of the renowned artist Wallace Berman, and we're here today to talk about his new memoir, Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World. It'll be out on famed City Lights Press on January 22nd. So, Tosh, your, your book is arranged in chapters that are devoted to um, particular uh, people and places uh, of the yes. era, like the Beats and the proto-hippies and hippies and not only the art stars and music gods and goddesses and actors that are drawn to your father, people like the beat writers Kerouac and Cassidy, mm-hmm. George Herms, the artist, uh, actor-artist Dennis Hopper. Yes. Dean Stockwell, yes. Stan Bland, yes. um, you know, just kind of running down the table of contents. Uh-huh. Um, you see all that, and 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 I, fe- it struck me as an appropriate way to structure the book, um, because it seems like your father is kind of perhaps better known for being a connector and an influencer, as opposed to for his his actual artistic output. That's a good, interesting question or statement. Um, my father appealed to certain social groups at the same time. And I know uh, people have tried to write a biography on him, and it became very difficult for them because they're getting like totally different stories about him, like different sides of him. And for the writers, writer, writers, plural, um, I think had a hard time ca- getting capturing the picture of him, of his, who he is. And he was a character, he was a character. He was a character, an individual who um, had his own social world of sorts, but sometimes these worlds do not mix, or they do mix in certain incidents or, or certain hmm. times. And um, my father has sort of, and to me, my, it seems like my father has different stages of his artwork, like different styles of art. He started doing the assemblage work in the 50s. In the 60s he started doing the Fairfax collages and then in the 70s he was doing uh, uh, um, um, painting uh, Hebrew lettering, Kabbalah, Hebrew lettering on board, on, on boulders and rocks and, and sort of like oversized pebbles. And, um, and he made a film. And it's hard for people to connect an artist's work doing various things or, or a certain time. When you think of Warhol, what do you think of? I say Andy Warhol. What, what's the first thing yeah, you want? Yeah, the soup can. 
same kid. Some people probably think of the Marilyn, of course, sure. or they think of the, the portraits he did in the 80s for, you know, the consignment stuff. Right. So, or they think of him as a party guy from Studio 54, you know, which is actually, the, the answer is all above is correct. So, uh, I think in that sense, my father's work sometimes was written about only one specific type of work um, and not his earlier work or, you know, stuff he was doing at that the point in time. So, his work was known, or is known, um, well, better known now because there's been retrospectives over the years and, and various big shows on his work overall, his overall career. But, um, but generally, viewers, people, consumers, the public only see certain aspects of that artist's work and that's it. It's, like, it's sort of a snapshot taken and it stays in their mind, that's what it is. Right. And uh, and socially, there's you know he he had a, he, he did have a relationship with the um, Warhol factory world um, through various people, not only through Andy Warhol himself, but he knew Gerard Malenga because Gerard Malenga has a great deep interest in well he was a poet Malenga right. and he um, stayed with him. He stayed and he, he actually stayed with us in the early seventies for like about two or three weeks. But on on top of that. Um, Malenga was very much interested in my dad's world or the poetry world and of Los Angeles poetry. You know, he 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 he, he was like an aunt. Again, I use this terminology, <laughs> who went out to find out what other ants are doing around the country or the world, and then he brings the information back. So his interest in poetry was everything from you know some New York East uh, East Village poet to to uh, Charles Bukowski. Yeah, and uh, he actually did a book while he stayed with us with Black Sparrow Press, another interesting West Coast press. So I, I bring that up just because Malanga is another person who one thinks from just being associated with helping the silk screens with Warhol, yeah. and he wrote poetry on the side for us. But the truth is, he was a very serious poet and has done many poetry books as well as photography is well known hmm. and but people don't think oh photographer poet or poet or they think of him as being a guy who's Andy Warhol's assistant right and obviously he's much more than that yeah he's an interesting dude for sure mm -hmm. I, and speaking of interesting dudes and, and dudettes mm -hmm. um, the, you know the book is populated with these really amazing stories but um, some of the stuff that I found most fascinating actually was not so much the uh, celebrities, which we'll talk about, mm -hmm. but the your your own family, your grandmother, and um, ran off to the Wild West show. <laughs> my German grandmother, my mother's mother, was born in Hamburg, and she was a cabaret performer when she was like fifteen in Hamburg, just during cabaret, right. pre Nazis, <laughs> the fun years of college, and she ran off very young age, was a teenager, and joined a circus that eventually went to Cuba. And from Cuba, she ended up in uh, California, and she joined the Tom Mix Circus. Yeah, see, this is what I'm talking about. And Your Tom, book is <laughs> filled with these. And Tom Mix, in case a lot of people may not know who Tom Mix is, my generation would know, perhaps. Sure, right, yeah. But Tom like, Mix was a huge um, cowboy movie star of the silent era. And... Uh, at the time and before and probably a little bit after, Mix had a traveling circus, you know, the, the clowns, the horses, and my grandmother was part of the part of the circus as a performer. 
And but she married the his stunt double. Yes. Yeah, married a, a stunt man who worked with Tom Mix and was a uh, I think I believe a, he was a uh, um, a stunt rider for horses. He probably can stand on his head on a horse, do stuff like that. And I think he did rope rope uh, and rope tricks. Sounds me doing a rope trick. And he, you look good at that. Thank you. And he. And, and I think it was a very short-term marriage. I think they had a child, and uh, they. I think he was he he was a wild guy, as as we know. All circus people are kind of you know. I mean, the rock and roll world is wild, but circus <laughs> people circus are. People. They take things to the edge and and then beyond and jump. So um, eventually, she, you know, they split up, and then she met my my grandfather, uh, Rudolph Morand. Canadian, French Canadian, and uh, they lived in Hollywood in Los Angeles, and they had two children. One is my dear uncle, Donald Morand, who's in the book a little bit, and one of the stars of the book is my mother, Shirley Berman. Yeah, there's some wonder beautiful stories about her, but prior to Shirley, it was Laurie... Laurie Fox. Laurie Fox. Laurie Fox is a very interesting person. Yeah, I love this story. I have a whole chapter on her. She was my father's serious girlfriend before my mother. And Laurie Fox was a hardcore criminal. <laughs> There's no crime of second nature to her. No, first nature. It's like the air you breathe, she must steal. And she must not only steal from stores and places like that, but also friends. <laughs> she's a kleptomaniac. I don't think she's a kleptomaniac. That's like something who's kind of sick. She is actually a professional thief. Oh, wow. <laughs> On the surface, a very terrible person. Yet, my uh, parents, even after my dad and her broke up, they were still friends. And my mother was friends with her as well. You know, he was my uncle. And she was always a presence. In my early life, in my family's life, and but she's always criminal. Yeah, but she had, it's quite a character too. Like she had a, a pet lion or something. She had an alligator. Oh, alligator! Yes. Who had the lion? <laughs> my uncle. Oh, oh excuse me. Super <laughs> <laughs> recall exotic animals. <laughs> yes. uh, no, it's through Lori Fox love of nature, <laughs> nature that my uncle and her moved to the desert, to like near Palm Springs. And my uncle was a very, very, very successful hairdresser. And um, so he worked in Palm Springs for all the Palm Springs, you know, ladies. And um, they had a farm, or like a property that could be a farm, and they made it into like a wild animal. Exotic like, animal farm. Wow. Yeah. But and the alligator like, was actually... When but that was just... For, they didn't have like people come by for that. That no. was their own thing, right? Their own, their own little pleasure. <laughs> I think two, they had two lions. I met one of the lions. They brought one of the lions on Christmas, I believe, one day. When I remember, I was like, I don't know... Nine or ten, something like that. I, I, we had Christmas at my grand, at my grandparents in Topanga Canyon, and I knock on the door, you know, and I knew it was my uncle, and I opened the doors, you know, because I was so excited to see him, because I adore my uncle, especially, you know, as a child, especially. And I opened the door, and this lion was in front of me. 
<laughs> and he jumped on me. And I remember him kind of dragging me around. He had no teeth. Oh. <laughs> and no paws on a thing. I mean, no right, claws. claws. Yeah. But strong enough to like take me around the room. Oh, my God. And you're how old in it? I was like eight or nine. Oh. But my memory of it is that I think it was, it was pretty much a great amusement of the grown-ups at the time. <laughs> As a rag doll. <laughs> so speaking of the, in, in those early years then, mm-hmm. uh, I was, or when, even when you weren't born yet, but when Wallace, was, he got kicked out of Fairfax High. For well, he had, he had, his, great, his career is quite great. He, he, <laughs> he got kicked out of Fairfax High School, I think, for gambling. And then he was either, due to his criminal activity of sorts, he had a choice of either going to juvie jail or join the Navy just during the war years, World War II. And uh, he chose the Navy because he thought that would be the most pleasant <laughs> of, <laughs> of the military the, services. See the sea. But sure enough, he, his job was working on radar, uh, r- running the radar, in, I guess, in, on, the, on, the Navy, on the Navy ship. And what bothered him was, and this is not, he didn't go to war. He was like basically, I don't know where, Long Beach or somewhere like that. Yeah. <clears throat> where, um, you know, the radar can't tell the difference, like a GPS actually, can't tell the difference between uh, a missile coming towards you or a submarine or dolphins. Mm. Dolphins read the same way as a ship or as a missile. So basically, the Navy. With him doing the radar, they're blowing up schools of dolphins. Uh. And I think eventually this really, really disturbed my father, which I think um, showed he had a conscience, of course. <laughs> Pretended to have a nervous breakdown, or he had a nervous breakdown. Maybe through his pride, he would say he pretended to have a nervous breakdown, but I suspect that it totally took him to an edge. So, he was kicked out of the Navy. <laughs> and then he eventually, you know, he interested in art and drawing. So he went to Charnard uh, Art School, which was the, the roots of Cal Arts, really. Yeah. Emerged into Cal Arts many, many years later for Walt Disney. And <clears throat> he was kicked out of art school. For? I never know a reason, but I'm sure it's from some minor criminal <laughs> offense of some sort. And then, as an artist, he had a show at Ferris Gallery, a very famous, legendary, now iconic art gallery in Los Angeles at Ferris Gallery, which at the time was, um, was organized and run and curated by Ed Keenholz, the artist, and Walter Hopps, who is, and rightfully so, a legendary figure in the art world. And uh, the first solo show they had at the press gallery was my father. And, of course, following the rest of his career and his life, he was, the show not, was only closed by the Los Angeles Police Department for, uh, for obscenity, pornography, but also he was sent to jail. So, from being kicked out of high school, kicked out of the Navy, kicked out of art school, Having a first solo show, not only being kicked out of that show by the Los Angeles Police Department, but also going to jail, I think had a profound effect on my father's career. His <laughs> I life. see that. Yeah, but I, I think he, but he, he wanted to be out of the mainstream anyway. I mean, it wasn't like 
He was trying. He had no choice. He just didn't want. He had no choice. Mainstream. His yeah. His character is of one who somebody cannot compromise with so-called cultures, norms, or 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 the way of society, or. or, he had to make his own world within his own world. It's not really anti the other world. He had no anger against that world. But he was an individual who, to exist, he had to make his own world. Yeah, and those worlds are interesting. I mean, you've got them kind of split up in three places, right? San Francisco, Larks, yeah, yeah. Each each and location, Los Angeles, each yeah. location, Topanga. Topanga, yeah. Each location is very important to my book, and I think to quote unquote narrative of my book. Uh, it, you know, starts off in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Beverly Glen, which is a canyon area between. Um, it's very close to Bel Air and close to uh, UCLA Sunset Boulevard to like. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful Co-op area. Canyon. It is. I haven't been there for years. And I like I like Beverly Glen, and then they, from there we went to uh, San Francisco during the height of the Beat generation, or as some of the people put the Beatnik scene, right? Uh, and to Larkspur, which is north of San Francisco. Anyway, and, then, and you left San Francisco for Larkspur because the Beat thing was getting to. It was like fifty eight, fifty nine, and at the time it was became. Um, it became a lot of tourists were coming to San Francisco to look at beatniks. <laughs> it was like beatnik capital to to the American mainstream's mind. Right, and this it's like uh, Dobie Gillis was coming out. Dobie Gillis was the height of Dobie Gillis. He had Maynard, <laughs> Maynard G. Crib, Maynard G. Crib, the 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 beatnik of all beatniks. Right. And you know all this is perfectly funny and amusing and and, and great sort of culture byproduct. But for my father and for others of that time, including Jack Kerouac, it well, was yeah, like... It, you're being caricatured. You're being caricatured, it's an insult. Now, keep in mind, the Beat Generation is not like a, like a, like a membership card thing where you're, you, <laughs> you've joined up. Like the Surrealist is very organized. You know, Andre Breton, Andre Breton, head Surrealist, had his associates who were... So, who were Surrealist, and they basically had a membership card of sorts. Really, kind of. Yeah, it's very strict. He had a very strict control over these, not the artist's work, but we got we have a policy. This is a surrealist policy. This that, is what surrealism right. is. Right, and then and then they became very left. They joined the Communist Party, and then you have to become a communist too if you want, you know. And of course, the Beats were not anything like that. The Beats are just basically a group of individuals in America in the late 40s to like the late 50s who are basically social misfits of sorts not uh, criminal well some are criminal but basically because the the Joseph McCartney McCarthy world of Eisenhower politics and that sort of norm of American culture at the time did not suit a group of young people at the time and it wasn't like the hippie thing which was more of a giant mass like a wave, the the beats were basically individuals who got together or not get together, and became connected to each other because of through publications and mm-hmm. and uh, and my dad's uh, journal or magazine or zine if you want to call it, Semina is one of the, uh, one of the few publications of that period of time that drew different 
people into one culture. You know, he had like a little bit of the surrealist thing, and he had like Artaud, and he did uh, Jean Cocteau, and uh, so he had the French thing, and then he had like Herman Hesse poetry, you know, yeah. uh, who are known at the time to people who knew of these people, but they're not really known to the mainstream. And also, uh, he was the first, maybe the first one to actually publish um, a little excerpt from William Burroughs' uh, Naked Lunch before it would become published. But this is all very organic how it happens. Like, you know, you have a journal and nothing's happening in the world and people hear this one news. So people are like interested to either participate, sending material, or to be a reader. Right. And it's a very small group. So the beatnik thing becomes this sort of stereotype image of a movement that doesn't even really exist. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't, it, it didn't exist at that time. Yeah, and, and what struck me too is like when you talk about leaving the beat scene because of the tourists and all that, and then moving to Larkspur. Larkspur small community, rural community by the waters of, I don't know what river it's on, but it's, we had a houseboat. I mean, like a, a house with stilts that went into the water, half land, half water. And if their tide rise, then the rest of the land will get wet and, or yeah. a couple inches of water. And there's like boardwalks leading to one place to another. So it's basically flat land, funky, funky boardwalks, right. and leading to one sort of old house to another. Yeah, and, and, the, and so to that, when the description of the place and when you're growing up, it, it's all um, it's all very stark and seems monk-like. It's monk-like in the sense that my father, <clears throat> though very sociable in his own social circle that he had around him or he participated in, he had no interest in community per se. Like here's the building, and you know there's a library, here's a book, here's a store. He didn't participate in that type of culture or society or community, but really almost like an international community of artists due to his journal, Semina, were drawn to him. But um, the monk existence, um, my father definitely needed quiet time to work on his art. And he, you know, I was raised like in a party situation, I mentioned before, where um, in Beverly Glen, when I was a child or a baby, when we had... We, the party lasted from Saturday to next Saturday, and they kept on going to next Saturday. And just, people just came by all the time. And my dad did some work at the, in some of that craze environment. It's sort of, it's sort of like a low-budget, low-profile Andy Warhol's factory. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of yeah, artists. there's a came. lot of parallels between the Warhol Same time, milieu yeah. and... I think I think it's like West Coast, East Coast, and I think it's people making like Warhol, like Warhol, Warhol to make his own culture to exist, because he was sort of a freak and uh, outcast, and he made a community of other outcasts and freaks and you know drug addicts and drag artists, and my father, though not as um, show busy or as extreme as that, a more quieter version, perhaps. Of, of that, that world's more organized. He's definitely had a, a plan mm -hmm. set in place. I think my dad had no plans whatsoever, and um, so he he needed a quiet place. Eventually, you know, he had to shut down the party, <laughs> and you know, it's not a high tension. You people don't go to the meet. Well, they go to meet other people, of course, like any parties, but it's not like 
I gotta meet this person who's gonna be at Wallace Berman's party, and if I meet him there, um, my career is gonna go up. I mean, nobody thought even, like that. Nobody yeah. thought like that. But and, and because of that, you got pulled into a couple of uh, uh, projects. Like you were in speaking of Warhol, you were in his movie. Yeah, I was, <laughs> as a child. As a child, and I played as a child boy. <laughs> the Tarzan. For I, I I had to say this, but I was typecast. <laughs> <laughs> It was in Beverly Glen, I guess around 63, 62, and uh, Warhol, with Jared Malenga and a couple other people, came across from New York by car, I think, you know, Route 66. <laughs> Route 66, they took the song literally, <laughs> got your kicks on Route 66, and they ended up in Los Angeles where uh, Warhol's great. I don't, you know, I'm not sure if it was Warhol's first trip mm. to Los Angeles. Well, he was at Ferris before that, so... He, he was, okay. Yeah. But for sure, Los Angeles, to Warhol's mind, was a plus. It's like the Hollywood dreams, you know, the movie dreams. And he's correct. He's absolutely correct that Hollywood, Los Angeles, is unique because this is a place where they made dreams of sorts. Projected dreams, projected by... And... Um, Warhol realized that, so he came west <laughs> to make his, I think his first feature-length movie of sorts. This was the Tarzan... Tarzan Jane Regain, sort of, with Taylor Mead playing Tarzan. There's Dennis a great Hopper. photo, by the way, in the book for the audience <laughs> of Taylor Mead yes. as Tarzan. T Taylor Mead played my dad. <laughs> <laughs> my father played the white headhunter. He was the bad guy, I guess. And Klaus Oldenburg was in it as well, another great artist, uh, who played, I think, a bad guy too. There's Dennis Hopper. <laughs> you know, there's not much of a big plot. It's basically a whole movie of sorts. Of like, whatever was happening, Warhol shot it. The strange thing is, I remember those days in that time very precisely. But, and I remember like Jordan Malenga there, I remember Taylor Mead, of course, he was so amusing. And I remember the woman who played Jane, I remember it so well, my dad, you know, doing everything and you know, being in the movie. But I have no memory of Warhol himself. Hmm. None. Well, he would appreciate that because he always wanted to be that way. That's like, what I've heard. I've heard from some people know him who said, well, that's the essence of Andy Warhol, you know. Um, I have no memory of him. And I saw it many years later, like about, maybe like 12 years ago. I never saw the movie when it, you know, at the time. And it's kind of a rare film. I mean, it, it's, it's distributed... It's not too stupid, but it's, it's the Whitney Museum has it, and the Museum of Modern Art, I think. But it's it, it, it's not a great movie, but it's historically important because well, I'm in it, of course. That well, the, right, yeah. That Other than so the fact that you're in it, <laughs> but it's it's it really captures Los Angeles art culture and New York's viewpoint of Los Angeles culture in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. There's no other film like it ever. I mean, there's other artist films and, you know, goofy stuff, but just the fact that it's Warhol, Dennis Hopper, my dad, Klaus Oldenburg, you know, Taylor Mead, and of course, Tosh Berman, the author of Tosh. <laughs> um, in this one, you know, this, this one movie, it's taken us from a specific time, right. a time capsule, it's perfect. We need to take a short break. You're listening to A.G. Geiger Presents Tales of the L.A. Art Underworld with me, your host, Michael Delgado. 
My guest today is author and publisher Tosh Berman. And we're coming to you from the beautiful, historic Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown L.A. If you haven't been here, you really have to come down. We're, we're in the library bar, which is tucked behind the gorgeous Art Deco lobby. And the library bar is a secluded little escape with a large fireplace, book-lined walls, and very, very cool furnishings. There's also a fantastic restaurant inspired by a character from a Raymond Chandler novel written during his stay at the Mayfair. It's from celebrity chef Scott Cummings. It's called Eve American Bistro. It's a great place for lunch and dinner, and, and, and I, I love it there. There's also a gallery from the music and artist management company, Regime 72. It always has a provocative show up. And currently there's a group show of street artists that includes Risk. It's, it's, worth a, it's really worth a look. Please check everything out online at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, AGGeiger.com. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're talking with author and publisher Tosh Berman about his new memoir, Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World. So Tosh, we, we were talking about how, uh, as a child, um, you'd get pulled into various projects, like the, the Warhol Tarzan movie. And then uh, that was not the end of your film career, right? You were, uh, or, or you were asked to be an easy writer. My film career is like non-existent, but yet a career. I've done movies as an adult, <laughs> but specifically, yes, I was asked to do Easy Rider. Um, so I, like, I went to the movie set, and it was a very low-budget thing, and, and um, I was very impressed to be there, not really because it's Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda and it's Easy Rider, you know, it's Easy Rider, but because they had food served there, they had a, they had a catering table. <laughs> oh. Craft services. Yeah, so as a child, I was really impressed, like, I can get anything I want here and not pay for it or ask anybody. I just walk up and... So that was really... I was very happy about that. And the hours are very long and very boring. It got cold there. You know, it was just very... I didn't... You know, it was uncomfortable. So towards the end of the day, Dennis approached me, with my parents there as well, and Dennis says, Tosh, do you mind... Um, be in my movie like tomorrow morning starting tomorrow and I said I'm thinking of the craft services craft services yeah like, and I said and, me in. and my parents basically just had to stand or sit and that's all they did you know no, you know, no speaking role extras yeah and I thought this and I thought surely I can do the same I mean I'm probably, I could just stand there and be shot you know I said sure and then unknown to me or well, unknown to me at the point there he takes a script he tears a page out of the script and hands it to me. And I'm thinking, what is this? <laughs> and obviously it's lines. I have lines. Oh, no, a speaking part. Speaking part. And I said, yes. Knowing in my mind that no way can I possibly even phantom to remember lines. So I think it was something like, welcome home, Billy, or something like that. <laughs> no way. <laughs> it's I could, very complicated. To me, it seemed very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what's my method? What's my... Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's, my, what's my inspiration? What's my inspiration? The craft food. <laughs> the <laughs> catered food. <laughs> That's my inspiration is catered food. So, in the morning, early in the morning, because my dad, had, my parents had to go there anyway to shoot more, you know, the more scenes of the extra stuff. And I told them, I, I, I'm not going to do this. I can't do it. I was like, I was scared. Yeah, I was scared to do it. Sure. And... I, and they went back you know, without me, and they told Dennis that he's not going to do it. And Dennis, 
the gentleman that he is and everything else and the way he looked at life just says no problem and he just tore up that part of the script they didn't shoot it I mean they just eliminated it well Billy was not welcome back to the commune so speaking of Dennis there's another fun story and I keep mentioning the stories because they are really fun and, and uh, make the book not only enjoyable but uh, you know also a real uh, picture of the time but mm. There was the time you went to Taos. Oh my. Even the name Taos. Oh, sorry. We always have Taos. <laughs> it's like we always have Chinatown. And that was part, was he filming there at the time? No, okay, let's so explain. Uh, Taos, New Mexico is a small, beautiful, I don't want to say city, it's a town in uh, New Mexico. And Taos was always like an art community of sorts. Um, there's a woman named Mabel Dodge who uh, in the 20s or the teens moved there, a wealthy woman, part of Dodge family, of Dodge cars, that industry. And uh, she was a, uh, a woman who was very art-minded and liked supporting artists. And people like D.H. Lawrence stayed there. Oh. So uh, Dennis Hopper, many years later, Dennis Hopper purchases the property of Mabel Dodge's oh, compound. Yeah, right. It's oh. like a compound. It's like a little... There's various houses in this mm-hmm. property. And uh, and D.H. Lawrence stayed there. You know, he lived there and he worked there. So Dennis purchased this house probably like in late 69, right after Easy Rider, when he got money from Easy Rider. Uh-huh. And that became sort of his creative, creative, you know, like Batman has his bat cave, Superman has the <laughs> solitude of fortress. That was Dennis Hopper's bat cave, I think. And he set up a, a, a editing room, a studio. And this is when he was doing the last movie, which was a totally infamous, legendary film. That uh, it was Easy Rider brought in attention to the new Hollywood, and the last movie pretty much <laughs> was the last movie. Oh, so killed, I'm not familiar. Oh, with it's that incredible! Part. It's like it, it's you know Easy Rider. It was very successful. You know this B movie that became this iconic cultural thing. And Dennis had this movie called The Last Movie that, you know, he, I think he wrote before um, Easy Rider. And this, now he has money, he's going to make the masterpiece. You know, yeah. the Citizen Kane, the <laughs> Eric von Stroheim's Greed. You know, it's going to be the movie of movie. You know, it's going to be the movie. And it's the B movie where he had everybody in it from Sam Fuller to my friends Dean Stockwell, Billy Gray, Russ Tamlin. You know, if my dad went to Mexico, yeah, or Peru, excuse me, Peru. Highly cocaine era. Yes. Which <laughs> um, we, we should not forget. Um, Dancing had everybody as possible. It's almost like you're, like you're like George Harrison, you make your solo album, and not only do you have your fellow Beatles, but every rock and roll musician possible to be on that one track with you. Mm. So, last movie was this epic movie that he made uh, that was slightly experimental. It had an experimental <laughs> tinge to it. And of course, it was a disaster um, financially and commercially, and as far as the new Hollywood thing. So, like, <laughs> new Hollywood, Easy Rider brought in, and last movie, Bat and Heaven's Gate sort of yeah, crushed okay. the. They're at the same time. Yeah. Well, a little bit years difference, but like, after Heaven's Gate, things changed, and then last movie was sort of the exit, or the entrance to the. The beginning Heaven's of the Gate. end. Yeah, the beginning oh, of the end. Wow. In my opinion, and I think you know, others would share it. Nevertheless, uh, 
so Dennis would, you know, he shot last movie in, in Peru, pretty much. And he did the editing in his compound in, in uh, Taos. And twice we went to Taos, New Mexico. And First, you were like 15 or 16. Yeah, I was a teenager. But what I re- soon realized, there was a huge tension between the small town Taos citizens and the Dennis Hopper organization. I felt my life was in danger. <laughs> oh my God, really? First night we're there, we got there at nighttime. We thought we'll just go out and have dinner with the Dennis Hopper host. We tried to find a restaurant to go to, and even though it seems to be open, the restaurants, they do not have any tables for us or, or oh, accept no. us. One after the other. And finally, one, we got accepted by one restaurant, and it was a very tense negotiation <laughs> between somebody from the Dennis Hopper group and you know the restaurant owner. And... It became obvious to me that, you know, the Hopper is like totally alternative, hippie, <laughs> free love, free sex, free life against the citizens of Taos, which are Catholic, Spanish, Mexican, very church-orientated. A little more conservative. And it had this, um, so it was very, you know, it was a very closed community. And Dennis Hopper was personally non grata. And invading this community. Yeah. And um, I felt the tension there. So even when I was at nighttime, and the, uh, and the Hopper people all carried guns, concealed weapons. And yeah, I, I got the feeling, and they were prepared for like, gun battles. It seems like, it seems like to me they, that that was not out of the realm to have a gunfight between the two groupings. Really, and it's and I just and I, so I go to bed there at night and I think like oh my god we're gonna get killed and slaughtered in the house while I'm sleeping that's the first thing I thought of right when I closed my eyes there it was very tense you know we got out okay everything's oh and then we, Dennis Hopper had the only movie theater and this probably they should probably show like Walt well, Disney movies probably Christian friendly film yeah. but Dennis being the film aesthetic that he is showed nothing but Bunuel movies oh, the Bunuel uh, movies oh, yeah. Perfect for the Catholic reference. Yeah, so you, so you get L.H.D.O.R. with Evolution <laughs> Dog Double Bill, right? <laughs> <laughs> so surprisingly enough, the critics have spoken, the, the citizens have spoken by honoring this theater was full of gun holes. Oh, my God. They shot it up? <laughs> they shot up to me. Everything was shot up. I remember walking, going by his theater and seeing, oh, my God. <laughs> it's all shot up. And this is why they're armed. Oh, my God. So this is like my first night in town. Um, I was very interested in the Topanga years, yeah. and you describe uh, the Topanga years as sort of the stupid hippie culture. Yeah, I, in my opinion, the whole like love hit sixties thing was a very short period of time, maybe months, sort of years or a decade. We think of the sixties as a decade. A lot of things happened that decade. You know, the civil rights, of course. But then there's the hippie thing. And the hippie thing, I think, is a very short-term the utopian. Yeah, the, the, there, was a, there was a period of time, maybe like 64, 65, was kind of purity, it was kind of new, it was great. But then, similar to the beat thing, but even more so than the hippie thing, because of the more harder drugs and the psychedelic drugs and stuff, um, all those runaway kids in in Kansas and... Nebraska and, and they, you know they came to the big cities you know Los Angeles and, mm-hmm. and they're kind of messed up people 
I, I suspect, and there, you know, there, there is issues they had. So they come to Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco to be with the love generation and stuff, but they're, in fact, they're not really loving people, these people are coming there. They, uh-huh. have, they have serious issues, they think, family issues, and, uh, and also narcotic issues. So I think that the, the nature of narcotics plus riffraffs in the, in the truest sense um, going on, landing on the foundation of the sort of the hippie, and again, you know, hippie again is like the beast, it's not a membership club thing, it's just yeah. a thing that's happening. And of course, it was being made fun of in the media as well, you know, like, you know, and we we're like laughing, we'll have like a hippie yeah. thing, you know, and stuff like that. But it's, um, but Topanga was sort of ground zero for that then. For me, it felt like that way, and for many people, Topanga was a utopian paradise. For me, it was kind of a, a hell. It was a, it was a hellish place because it's a utopian paradise that had rotted fruit on its premises. You know, it was rotting. And the truth is, a lot of great people in Topanga. I mean, they're not like it's not bad people or evil people, but it was just a a cultural thing where when you move in a canyon or rural area, you're running away from something, usually. You're either embracing nature because that's what you like to embrace, or you're running away from the cement, concrete, and yeah. the jobs, and you know the, that type of world, the nine to five world. And often you go to these communities and you make your own world. It's like the aquarium I was talking about earlier, okay. about the gold, the fish. It seems so peaceful and new agey to have fish in a tank. But the truth is, fish is very tribal. They go after other fish. If you're, not, if you're not careful, they will eat the other fish and they'll eat it in front of you. Mm. And I feel like the, 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 the counterculture was this, in a similar vein that they eventually will eat each other. Hmm. Or in fear of the outside world so greatly. Now, but in Topanga, there, your father had a lot of friends. He did. Uh, he was there, perfectly there was, happy. Oh, okay. <laughs> the son, me, was not... I mean, I, I didn't suffer. It wasn't like I was like, you know, I didn't mope around. I mean, I was just not, I thought it was a better world somewhere outside of Topanga. And again, the problem with Topanga was, you know, especially if you didn't drive at the time, it's, it's really a two-lane highway to, to the beach, Santa Monica, Malibu. Right. At that time, it was very remote. And then no in Woodland Hills, San yeah. Fernando Valley. So it took a half an hour drive to... Go Either to way, the beach, to yeah. The beach or to the valley, yeah. yeah. So there's a dis- dis- distance thing you have to go through, and you're very much, you know. And then, as Californians know by now, or you should know, you're consistently on the brink of total disaster. You know, fires, earthquakes, of course. That you know, I have we have, we avoided so many fires, and including the earthquakes that took place in Topanga. So what happens is a mudslide, right? That cuts off from being, being out the outside world. So we had to, there's like this physical aspect of living in the canyon area where, where there's on a two-lane highway, if that street breaks down, or there's mud, tons of mud on that street, you can't get out or get in. Yeah. It's, 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 a, you know, it's a strong, it's, it, that, has that, that sort of, um, it has a strong presence on me as a child. And it's interesting. Yeah, and and, and you're, you're like, a teenager, so you're rebelling anyway, which is funny because you're surrounded by all these rebellious people. How can you rebel so against <laughs> right. my father? <laughs>
how can you rebel against a man who brought the Velvet Underground album to the house or the Fugs house or Kevin B. Parts Trout House but you have to I mean you had and you <laughs> you did right you became a glam kid I did I became uh, I you know I wore like white, white Johnson 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 powder on my face <laughs> and, and I you know and I but but I had a uh, I did I had a, a love for the glam and then of course my father being my father, he also loved the glam. <laughs> so I never rebelled against my father per se. And actually, never, I never felt rebellion. More of a um, a rebellion against the community, mm-hmm. not against my parents. More about the community, not even individuals. More like the Topanga clique and yeah. stuff. Because really, Topanga was showbiz figures, drug dealers, and then like really bad riffraff who worked for the drug dealers, or hmm. you know. Or who worked for the entertainment figures, and it was very, um, and a lot of like single moms, those kids you know, who were kids were troubled because they craved a I think a father figure, and said you know hmm. it's always the biker boyfriend or the hippie boyfriend uh, or you know yeah so it wasn't really like they didn't, there was nobody there who like work there was no bankers there there's no like a banker <laughs> or somebody owned a shop or or. or a school teacher. It's all you know, sort of like the strange, you know, uh, counterculture figures at the time, who had families or participated in family right. situation. Huh. I can't imagine. Well, <laughs> yeah, because I know you're from like Orange County. Yeah, yeah. yeah my my upbringing was completely. Yeah, my upbringing. Yeah, I didn't realize my upbringing was strange or different. I mean, to me, it's not strange, but I realized it was different from eventually meeting other kids, you know, my generation, who live in the valley or live next a couple of doors down in San Francisco. But um, NTV, you know, I mentioned in the book, I've seen shows like Father Knows Best, and for people now who probably don't know the show, but it, the show was this a typical American family of a father, mom, and three kids. So a teenage boy, an older teenage sister, and a younger sister and the father works somewhere we don't know where he works so it's not important basically it's all him coming home and leaving <laughs> home that's the whole show him leaving home and coming home and then dealing with issues at dinner time which is not really big issues at the time but um, one of our friends my dad's friend was Billy Gray who played Bud the main character in Father Knows Best hmm. and when I saw Father Knows Best it was after the show was over. It was like, re- you know, right? there's repeats. Yeah. And I remember watching it and like, it was totally natural to see Billy on the show because Billy as Bud was, to me, in my mind, same character. Hmm. Same open, lovable, great guy figure. And to me, it's like, I guess he, you know, I don't know if he's playing himself, but I don't feel there's a difference between real life Billy and the fictional character Bud. And I know Billy resented he never told me this personally, or, or but in an interview, I know he re- he ended up resenting Father Knows Best because it was a picture of an idealistic American life that's not true. You know, the fact is, certain cast members was had a huge depression, depression and alcoholic problems, as well as one of the children had serious family issues that are you know, yeah. sort of typical of what we see now in American families that everybody talks about. Yeah. But nobody talked about it at that time. So Pondo's Best was a sort of like a weird propaganda version of um, 
as all situation comedy shows at the time of this world that seems to be sort of perfect. Though little troubles here and there, but you know, apple pie, a little cup of coffee, and the end of the yeah, world will solve everything. But that's not the case, and I think Billy res- resent that. And anyway, my take, I noticed there's another world out there for these TV, sh- for these TV shows that I watch, and uh, it was like a different world. It's like Superman's Bizarro, where Superman's Taylor Strange type yeah, Superman. Because yeah. I had a father, I had a mother. There was me, so I had a, I had, and I have grandmother and a one grandfather. So I had a family structure, a unit. A lot of people who I went to school with did not have that structure in Topanga, you know, or the or the countercultural war, yeah. world. So I had a father and a mother, a very strong mother role at the time, and a very strong masculine father role. I was raised in that type of environment. In a, in a countercultural in the counter-culture way, world, yeah. yeah, and and uh, so I, I we got to wrap it up. But I think you know all of these stories. I highly recommend the book because, uh, as I mentioned at the start, um, it gives such a wonderful portrait of the era and those artists and the art stars, and you know. But for because you're so innocent and know nothing else other than that you're growing up in it to this day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's very funny. Um, I'm not sure it's my upbringing that affected me, but I still feel like a child. I still feel like, if I'm in a room full of grown-ups, I still feel a child. Even though these adults in the room are in their 40s or 50s, and I'm 64 now, I still feel almost like a class difference. You know, like I feel, I have to be nice to my elders. But I didn't realize, well, wait, I'm the elder. <laughs> They're like in their 40s or 50s. Um, not saying that I think youth, I'm not a youth, I mean, I am youthful, I guess, in a sense, but it's not that or that I appear to be young. It's more of a, I never lost my certain reverence I have for adult world. I, the adult world was very important as a child. I was a child and there was an adult world. And I knew the structure of that. I knew, I, I knew I'm a child. Yeah. I never, ever, ever misunderstood my role as a child or as a teenager. But I never grown out of that. I never grew out of um, realizing that I'm, I still feel like I'm still the, the straits of when I re, when I wrote my book and I reread my book and think of my past. I haven't changed really. I have. I mean, I've gotten wiser in a sense about how to arrange to do things in life. But I'm still the essence, the same person that's in the book. And it's quite a book. I highly recommend it. Tosh. Growing up in Wallace Berman's world drops on January twenty second, two thousand nineteen, and it's on City Lights Press. Yes, it is City Lights, a great, great publishing house. Very honored okay. to be with them. Famed. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. I'm right now living my moment, but tomorrow we never know what will happen. <laughs> I may have to grow up tomorrow. No, please don't. Okay, I'll do. I'll do my best. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming down We're here in the Mayfair Hotel. Yeah. Beautiful Mayfair Hotel. It is amazing, isn't it? Tosh will be reading from his book here in Los Angeles at Skylight Books on January 24th and at Book Soup on February 17th. Uh, he's reading a couple nights in, uh, in San Francisco at City Lights and at three bookstores in New York in February. 
Um, all of that info is on aggeiger.com. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, and next week, check out our show with Brendan Constantine, uh, the L.A. poet of the moment. He's a really interesting character. Uh, he reads from his new book, Bouncy Bounce, and uh, it's a great show. So please check it out wherever you get your podcasts. A.G. Geiger Presents is brought to you by the beautiful Mayfair Hotel and the music and artist management company Regime 72. I'm your host, Michael Delgado. Thanks for listening.